Hello and welcome to episode four of Afraid to Ask. This is a podcast where we ask those questions you don't want to because maybe you're too embarrassed or don't know who to talk to. No matter how stupid or contrived, we're here to answer those questions for you. My name is Amanda and I'm joined by Laura, who isn't here right now, but she is co-hosting this episode with me. And we're talking to Professor Welby Ings. He is the director of a short film called Sparrow, which addresses uh, some of what we'll be talking about today. This is a special episode. It is a bit more serious uh, as we're remembering Anzac Day and all the troops who have fought. We're talking about the presence of gay soldiers in wartime and the impact of keeping this minority silent. We'll also be cutting across to Stan on the street, our regular segment where we ask AUT students their opinion on the topic. If you want to get in contact with us or even submit your own question for a future episode, you can tweet us with the hashtag AUT. We'll be back at the end to fill in any gaps and enjoy the episode. Okay, you talk if you haven't got a break. What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on first. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? At this point, I'm too afraid to ask. It's a, it's a story that was hidden for many years in New Zealand. It was hidden in, by a family. Um, they basically um, told everybody that their their father had died a hero in Egypt, saving people's lives. He had medals. The family wore the medals in the Anzac parades, and that had become completely accommodated as truth. The truth was he was actually a gay man who uh, deserted during the Egyptian campaign when his lover was shot. And in grief, he carried his body out of the dugouts into the line of fire of the Germans, and he wasn't shot by the Germans. He was returned to New Zealand um, with what we now call post-traumatic shock syndrome, and he lived the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital, hidden away, and that's where he died. And the only thing that existed of this was a small box of letters that I was given. Most of them had never been opened, where he was trying to explain to he was begging his son to come and see him. He was trying to explain what happened. But the myth rode over the top of it that he'd been a war hero, and that's what was played out. And it struck me as a an essentially very human result or casualty of war. So we think of the casualties of war as the heroic soldiers who get shot and, and, and we, we march in parades about them and we, we honour them. But there's whole levels of victims of war that don't make it into the grand narrative. And this was a story that I thought that I would treat that way. The difficulty was when I started trying to research it, you realise that invisibility operates as an agent in things especially around anything we don't want to know about in the grand narrative or that will disrupt it. So for instance, when I was having to design the, um, the, the rooms and corridors of the psychiatric hospital and I was trying to find photographs of the places where men with shell shock were put, no photographs. Plenty of photographs of men with f- physical injuries in the front wards of the hospitals Lots of photographs, lots of photographs of nurses, lots of them even coming off the boats, waving with their arms and bandages. No photographs of a man who was psychologically damaged, just rendered invisible. So then I started looking at things like, well, what about the stories of the men who committed suicide? So in World War I, we have a documenting of four. They just exist as a few lines because they're not part of the grand narrative. We don't want to tell those stories. Other ones have surfaced more recently, you know, it's like the furlough incident, you know, where 500 men deserted in New Zealand in World War Two. 500 men deserted. They were, you know, they were, they were charged with desertion, but never made the newspapers. 
it was just erased because that was going to disrupt the heroic narrative of war. These men who had been constructed for public consumption as heroes were suddenly doing something that was counter to what was needed in the story. And within that whole world of realm of invisibility and promoting a very narrow idea of what it is to sacrifice for your country, gay men become invisible, lesbian women become invisible, um, suicides become invisible, all these things that problematise it. We Sometimes we'll nominate them and we'll say, oh, they exist, but they never make it into the grand narrative. And we have huge trouble getting it there. And that's why I made the film, because in truth, although I'm, I'm a filmmaker, I'm also a, a human being living in a world with other human beings. And it seems to me that war is the failure of civilization. It's the failure of civilized behavior. So we have to understand it as something more than a grand narrative. We have to understand it in all of its dimensions, because that's the only way we're ever going to really be able to deal with it. I was reading your essay that you uh, gave to us to uh, get a bit of background reading and to understand this more. And um, you mentioned a big uh, old photo of a uh, blown up photo of a soldier in uniform. And we had one of those, my granddad, um, his in his house uh, in the, the room where I stayed as a, as a child. There was this big, big old image of I think it was my great grandfather in, in World War One uniform. And I don't know anything about him apart from that. I think it was my great grandfather. How many people out there do you think have these uh, these big photos and they don't really know anything? It's a really good question because lots of people have the photographs as physical forms and a lot of them have them as three lines of a story. You know, your great-great-uncle went to war and died a hero. And some people have them as a, as a, as a photograph. Invariably, they frame two things together, heroism and sacrifice if the person dies. So they're seen as sacrificing, not getting killed they sacrifice and those two things are fused together and we often will blow we will when those photographs were taken they're often taken before the war and they were idealized photographs and they were the understanding was that that might be the only testament left to the humanity of that person so in many families those are the only photograph that exists but if you look at the construction of them it's very hard to see the personality what you see is the heroic sacrificer so you look at your, your uncle or your grandfather or whatever and you go, who, who were you? I wonder who you were. I wonder if you like your eggs turned over. I wonder if you grew great beetroot. You know, I wonder all those it's things. True. But that's all stripped away from it because that's not part of how you continue the narrative of the heroic soldier. Because, and that's why we talk about soldiers and troops. We, we take away all those dimensions of the personality because that's not going to function well in war. And we create another idea, the heroic male sacrificer. And we make those, um, they become, and we, we invest a kind of an emotionalism, emotionalism in it. So we, we feel and we, we, we grieve for men we don't actually know. We're grieving for a symbol of something. And then you, when you find um, certain historians, and certainly in oral histories, people are trying to put the dimensions back on those men. Trying to, and, and actually, it's not just on those men. I can think of, of, of women who have served where there was a stripped-out idea of, oh, she was a serving nurse. And you go, actually, it was a lot more complex than that, a lot more complex. So I've always liked the idea that history is not a single thing. There are histories. And fortunately, we've kind of made that shift in our society. But we still battle with things like the grand narrative. And we still, I would say we still teach our kids 
the grand narratives of war. That's what Anzac is. And it's, I'm not decrying Anzac because it is, it's a way that a nation's trying to deal with things, but the difficulty with it is it often reduces things to fields of poppies and playing of the last post and the idea of a very narrow idea of what someone who goes to war is. And it's uh, so we look at our museums, reconstructions, we actually occasionally cinema or literature disrupts this, but it's not part of the grand smoothed out narratives that's put there. So we don't know the smell of a body when it's been lying in the mud for three weeks. We don't know what that is. We know men looking like comrades and tired in the mud, but we don't know the human aspect of that. We know the picture of it, like the, the photo in the bedroom. Mm. Yeah, it was always a photo that somewhat terrified me as a child. Um, but, um, yeah, and I, I don't know anything, and it, it does make me wonder, and I think, Amanda, you were wondering too. Yeah, I'm sitting here listening to you, and it sort of strikes me and we really don't know the truth of this and I know that history means his story it's just one take one story one like narrative as you're saying and how many people don't know the truth behind the stories of these people that we are remembering however beautifully like you said with there's just a few moments and pictures that we're celebrating but they've covered up in essence the truth of perhaps these gay people who were you know, the humans that had a story behind them we, that we don't know. And that truth is like, really, after reading your essay, has sat with me for days of realising that and what, how that could be covered up in such a way that's... I think it's even more than covered up. I think it's consciously forcing them to disappear. So if you go back even to the 16th century, when we have a look at the idea of, of homosexuality among soldiers... When we look at, at uh, classical uh, cultures, Greeks and Rome, there was not there was an accommodation that was just understood as part of masculinity. There wasn't a, a binary made between masculinity and homosexuality. During the up and through into the 16th century, we got the idea of homosexuality not so much associated with um, the feminine or the anti-masculine, but with the decadent, with the with the degenerative. So. Um, and so when you have a look at the accounts, say, from the, the, um, the Dutch armies in the 16th century, there are a lot of accounts of um, homose- what's called homosexual behaviour. And sometimes those men were burned to death, but oftentimes when they... This was especially among mercenaries. But oftentimes what happened was they couldn't afford to do that, so they, they found them guilty and then didn't action it because they needed them there to fight. And that idea of this paradox of going... This is, this is a big anxiety for us, but actually we need you. Sits there and everything right up to 1994 when America passed the don't, don't ask, don't tell. You know, it took, took 2011 to get rid of that, which goes, we contract with you to be silent. We, we need you. We need you to sacrifice. We need your intelligence. We need your emotional intelligence, your, your physical ability. We need all those things. But you have to contract to be silent because what's happened, I, I argue, is that we have separated, we have put turned the um, uh, gay, lesbian, LGBT behaviour into the, especially amongst men, into the opposite of masculinity. And we use that as the way to frighten into a certain framework of masculinity. So if you have a look at that, the army has always been a homos, 
a homosocial organisation. By homosocial, I mean this is largely a collection of men living in adverse conditions around men. And so masculinisation was built up around the homosocial. So the First World War, that was triumphed. You know, these were the, the, the adventurers who went out and um, conquered the, the naughty people in the colonies or conquered these things, and they were fighting for an ideal which was normally king and country. And they were led by other men and obeyed other men and were meant to show masculinity by obedience. The end of the First World War, that had kind of gone to custard because these men had found that these officers they were supposed to be obeying, were many of them were incompetent. These men had um, they'd seen the res- what war was on a visceral level. It wasn't a boy's own annual. And so there was a mistrust around that idea of masculinity. And what happened was between then and the 1930s was what we we now commonly call the crisis of masculinity, where men started rethinking masculinity. And so instead of these values of loyalty and obedience and patriotism, the ideas were like individuality and flexibility. And they came because, arguably, in the Depression, these men who were told, you know, being a man is being able to provide for your family and somehow the benevolent state will care for you. Well, the state didn't care for them, and they were in queues just trying to get food. And so that idea of masculinity started falling apart. And then you come to the Second World War, when you have somehow got to mobilise a whole nation of men to go and fight for another ideal, and the triumphing ideas are things like individualism and flexibility. That's not going to pull an army together. So what they do, and there's some very, very interesting material on this, when you look at things like advertisements and and film of the period, they reconstruct masculinity in a very short time frame to mean it's a shift from the from the First World War, which is essentially homosocial. Now the thing is you're a family man and you're fighting for women and children and you're fighting for your nation and you're fighting for ideals. And so you get lots of photographs of sailors kissing goodbye to girlfriends or people saying goodbye to their mothers and children. Or this, So suddenly what surfaces up is a very heteronormative idea of the male, that the masculinity that differs from the First World War. And, and so men are told that somehow in there, your masculinity is going to be associated with your ability to sacrifice for this greater idea. You will fight and die for freedom, not for God and King, now for freedom, for it's an ideal. And if you don't, if you pike out, then you're not a real man. If you get there and you fall apart psychologically, it's considered a failure of masculinity, just as it was in the First World War. So we're using masculinity as a device. And so set against that, what's set as the pole to that is homosexuality. The difficulty, of course, is that you have to scrub out things like Lawrence of Arabia or Richard the Lionheart, who were gay men, who were... Kitchener, who goes, we want you. These are gay men. So you have to strip off the sexuality off them as fast as you can, sanitise that narrative, still use the pieces that you want. The difficulty with investigative historians is, of course, they reclaim that. And so oftentimes it's been historians actually within the LGBT community who've gone back, who've been integral to going back to get that stuff. So I don't don't think... I actually think it's a conscious sanitising because... It, and another really, really powerful example is, and this is a heartbreaking one, but it's a, a really good example. We know that in the Second World War under the, the Nazis, they shot gay men, they shot their gay soldiers, just shot them. That was it, no trial, they shot them. And we go, that's terrible, that's terrible. We know that under the Nazi regime, somewhere around 15,000 gay men were put into concentration camps. 
their testicles were boiled off. So this is stuff that we didn't know for a lot, that was just kept sanitized. So we will tell the grander narratives of the persecution of other groups, but the gay men of, in the, in the final analysis, when the people were released from the concentration camps, the only group not to get reparation were gay men, the only group. It wasn't until the 1970s that they even became acknowledged. Most of them went back into prison, those who had survived the thing. And the, the, but this is the Allies. This is the Allies going and freeing people and telling the stories from the camps. But our people are made, are consciously rendered invisible because we're a problem. And so we had to, and so it wasn't until like the first autobiography started surfacing in I think 1973, where we started reading this stuff and going, oh my God, we kind of heard reference that we were there. Let me give you another example. You've probably seen pictures of the book burnings that the Nazis did. People vaguely have an idea that it's probably about Marx and you know burning all these. No, 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 no. This is Hirschfeld's library. The sex. This was the gay histo- gay sexology historian who'd been the darling of academia in the 1920s, who had done the first really major investigation into sexuality. That's what's being burnt there. That's an attack on gays. That's not an attack on a political ideology. And but we suck that into our history and go, oh, the Nazis burned books, as if it's some assault on the intelligentsia. Uh, It's something a little more than that. You have to dig a little deeper and then ask the question, why? Why? So this is not something that... This has been part of our growing up and the growing up of our parents and our parents before them. And so that's why I guess you're asking questions like you are on this, this. You're going, well, maybe it's time... And now that some of the stuff has started surfacing, to actually look at the implications of this. Because I don't think as a society we want to be there again. I don't think any civilised society wants to be there again. And certainly when you look at the developments in the New Zealand Defence Force, which was one of the early, quite early internationally adopters of equity, building up off our human rights amendments in the early 1990s, they didn't go the American route of don't, you know, we just, you guys just got to keep it secret, and if you don't, then you're in the kaka. No, they didn't. They went, okay, so this is a human rights thing. So things like our Navy became an international world leader in this. So even questioning things like the glass ceiling and promotion. So we have a, we have a proud but also a troubled history. And um, I, I always think um, um, that uh, you know, John Gray, who was the uh, philosopher of Western thought at the London School of Economics, he, he said something that some people criticise him for, but I think it's right. He said... You'd, Society doesn't actually become more civilized. It doesn't. Be- it may become more technologically literate or able, but human behavior. There will always be the propensity for great atrocity and great wonderment, great humanity. It's our job. It's our job in every generation to be attentive. You know, so we can't sit back and go, "Oh, you know, yeah, we're going to be better." And a very good example of, he gives of it is if you go to the early 1990s and you would say th- to the average American, "What do you think about torture?" They'd go, oh, "It's disgusting." That's you know no civilized nation would do it. Guantanamo Bay was there and accepted by the end of that decade, accepted. And this is this is the kind of illustration he gives. But you can actually go into LGBT histories and find the same thing where we go. We would never have allowed that. We would never allow that. And yet societies will revert. And often our people become the whipping, the whipping stock. But they rent the device that's used on them is invisible, which means you didn't exist. Or that, and if you have to exist, that dimension of you is not allowed to exist, and so we amputate. 
I don't know what what your perspectives from from you know an LGBTI community, but for me, I'm just finding that the way that the military and society has influenced, like you said, our consciousness and labelled it and marketed it and use different ways to pull strings to make people stand up and fight for their country. And one thing that brings to mind for me is that this younger generation now, less and less people are wanting to join the army and they've all like, no, I'm not into it. And it would be very difficult for them to pull strings in a new way to get this next generation to join a cause like that that has been so manipulative in the past, for lack of a better word, and I just don't see that happening. See, I in think the John Bray would go, no, it could happen like that. Mm. Look how 60 million people voted for somebody in America. Mm. You know, this is what he, I think he's arguing is that we have to always be attentive that maybe we would like to believe. I mean, in the 1930s, people were going, you were never going to get men to trust the government again. And they did. Within they, six months. Um, and one of the devices they were using was this is how you prove to be a man. These are the men. So that's why the heroic construction of the soldier is aligned with masculinity. Look, you can make a a man play rugby. You can make him take hoonish behavior just by threatening his masculinity. It's a very, very powerful device. And it's it's used over and over again. And so, I mean, in the 1970s, I used to... This was why while our people were still, our men were still put into prison for seven years for being gay. So for being an out gay man at that time, that was, it wasn't a bed of roses. It wasn't. And I used to go every Anzac service, normally in Hamilton to Piranha Park, and I would lay a pink triangle wreath there. And the pink triangle had only just kind of come into recognition as a gay symbol at that stage. It was before the rainbow flag and the teddy bears, all that stuff. So, and it was a kind of a, it was a symbol of, of remembered persecution. And um, and it, I'd be allowed to put it on, and then someone would read what it was. And I just used to say for our, our, our gay and lesbian families who died as a consequence of the war, it would invariably have been taken off every year. And you'd go back alone, because there weren't that many people who were prepared to go with you, and it'd be taken off, and you'd try and put it on, and then it'd get broken. And then an incident happened at the Auckland, when I was up, up in Auckland. This was in the early 80s, and it made me remember, the, see the other side of this. The year before, it had been taken off, and there were a couple of guys there. I think they were from the RSA, um, and they were pretty hostile about it. And, uh, and they said, you know, you're, you're being disrespectful. And I said, uh, you know, um, I've got people in my family who died who were gay men. And um, I've also got people in my family who were lesbian women who came back and their brothers were shattered and their brothers couldn't get help from the state and they were told, the sister was told to bring them up and they were violent and they committed suicide and she became a victim because of that, because she was part of a family in New Zealand. So there are, we're, we're and, and she didn't, you know, because she didn't marry, her job was to look after the family because the idea that lesbian women might marry at that stage wasn't part of the framework. So... Um, I was I was up there this this morning, and I, I confess that even now I don't go to so many anymore. But it's because a, a a beautiful but poignant incident happened. I'd taken the wreath up. It was only it's only a small wreath, about the the length from your forearm to your fingers, mm-hmm. and uh, and I laid it on. Yeah, it's the only pink one there. You could see I didn't even like pink really as colour, but you're being staunch, you know. <laughs> Lay this pink triangle there, and this guy came over, and he he didn't even say a word. He just picked it up. He took it, walked it off down by the car park and just threw it on the ground. So I walked behind him doing the Gandhi thing and then picked it up. 
And I came back up and he and his another colleague were standing there in front of where the wreaths were to be put. This stuff's never going to make the stories about Anzac, right? And I thought, yeah, I, I wanted to walk away. And he thought, I, I actually don't have this choice. I don't have this choice. If I have respect for my people, I don't have this choice. It's not to be confrontational, but it's somehow got to be there. And, you know, in, in Hamilton, I was going back like two hours later and making, putting the wreath there. It was never there the next morning, you know. And I went to put it down, and the guy bent down and started, in undertone, but he was talking to me, and he, he took it out of my hand and he threw it. And I bent down, and a, a woman, I think she might have been in her maybe early 80s, stood in front of me and bent down. I thought, oh, here we go. And I will always remember this, um, because she said two words, and it was heartbreaking. I bent down to pick it up, and she turned around and looked at these two guys, and she said, all men. All men. And she stood by me while I picked it up and put it there. And I remembered that, that of course, in times of war, our people have been part of, we're part of families, we're part of, and we're part of nations, and we're part of the army, we're part of dimensions. So many people actually understand that we're not invisible. Mm -hmm. And this woman on her own, with no support, you know, was an ally across generations. And I guess that's what reminds me that we must always be attentive, that things can always change, but we must always, always stand, and if not just for ourselves, for other minorities who are edited out of the grand narratives. And what what do you perceive of the new generation where gay marriage is legal? We celebrate the LGBTI community, and for generations you've you've covered this up in war. Hypothetically, if there's another military scenario, they try to enlist everybody. They're suddenly like, oh, we welcome LGBTQI. In what sort of dimensional world in our consciousness will they suddenly accept them? Or everyone's just going to go, f off. No, you've. You've buried us for generations. We're not helping you. Like, what the he what happens there? I think the answer lies in the, between the 16th and the 19th centuries. Um, so there are times when we've become useful in war, and then it's all just going, oh, you're part of the normal flow. So if you look at something like the Navy, so this is the time of the great sailing ships. So the standard joke, the standard thing was, you know, this was rum, bum, and backy, so that sodomy was considered part of being at sea. That was it. It was... Just standard joke. That line appears in songs all over the place. But at times men were sewn into sacks and thrown overboard for sodomy. Or men were, wait if they were near port, they waited to burn them when it was useful. So while you go, while we go, this is, I come back to the kind of John Gray thing, that, that we might go, yes, well, it's all going to be right and we're going to be over there. Well, we've been over there forever. We've been fighting in all of your wars. You know, mainly we've been either choosing to be liberal to be safe or uh, choosing to be invisible to be safe or rendered invisible. But we've always been there. We've always been there. Um, whether you choose to acknowledge us or not acknowledge us or persecute us, that's just a historical thing. I've, you know, there's that old saying about, you know, history repeats itself. Well, I don't think that's so true. I think history reads its patterns. It it. it certain patterns will play out. And and minorities, I would say the same thing will happen can happen for women too, where they suddenly seen as useful, and so suddenly in the Second World War they become women, will save the nation, they will work at telecommunications, they'll go out on the land. But as soon as that's not no longer necessary, there's this shift and you go back to the kitchens. You know, a Kelvinator will make you happy. And so, and that's, you know, that's 
within your grandparents' lifetime. So I think, again, I think that um, while these things are here, and these are good things, these are good things, they're just respecting human dignity, it's not a given they will always remain. And it doesn't mean that we're negative about it, it means that we're attentive to it. And we're not attentive just to our condition as a, um, as a rainbow community, we're attentive to other condition, other groups. So when you look at the makeup of the concentration camps, in there with us were the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, in there with us were pacifists. In there with us were gypsies. And often their story, I mean, their story hasn't been quite as erased as ours, but they were kept very quiet. And I think that's why oftentimes you'll find marginalised groups have understood the political necessity to have allegiance with other political minority, other minorities, you know, so that collectively, collectively we don't get picked off. So do you think gay people fought in World War One and Two? Yes. Yeah, I think they came out. They kept like, it under wraps, though. You didn't come out because, yeah, he's like, no, it wasn't as accepted as it is now. Why do you think we don't hear about any gay soldiers in war? People kind of look down on you if you identify it as, you know, gay or bisexual or lesbian or anything like that. I think it's a day and age where if they were, you know, if they did come out as gay, then they wouldn't, they would just look down upon back then. So, I'm like, to be like a hero, they wouldn't advertise it as all oh, these people were gay, like all their special. Because I feel like if they did do something that was, you know, worth mentioning, it wouldn't it would kind of be shouted by the fact that they were gay. It was like the guy who broke the Enigma code. He was gay. Oh yeah. Mm. Did, didn't he get persecuted for being gay? Yeah. 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 Do you think now there's any focus? The New Zealand military is becoming quite liberal. I've just left the military. So, yeah, I was in the Navy. So, definitely, um, the Navy's just paid for a transgender, um, for a guy to become a girl. Yeah. Oh. They've paid for the whole operation and process and everything. So they talk a lot about gay rights and everything in the New Zealand military these days. Do you think that there are any stories about them that are waiting to be told out there? Have you heard any stories? That's such a good question. I think probably anybody listening to this who have got a bit of a history in their family knows the answer is yes. One of the things I found was when I was researching the film, like I tend to do a lot of research behind stuff. So although I might make you know, um, movies or write novels or whatever, I, I do a lot of research. And although I'm quite a private guy while I'm working, I will listen to people, I talk and listen to people. And when I was, um, I was up in Scotland uh, talking to a part of my family and, uh, and I was telling them about the story that, that's behind Sparrow and they went, do you know there's another story just like that in your family in Scotland? And I thought, whoa, whoa. And they said, you know, we've got, we've got, there were three uncles and uh, one died in the war, um, one was married five times and one died, and his gardener lived with him all his life. And um, and I thought, oh yeah, there's the gay one. And they went, do you know what, when he died, um, the one who was married five times, when we were cleaning out his house, we found all these gay magazines from the 1950s. Oh, that's interesting. And then they said, but here's the really tough one. We thought, when, when the other uncle died, the gardener came to see us, and these men had inherited a great deal of money, and they suddenly found there's no money there. And the gardener said, "Look, um, I went to war with your, with you know your uncle, and uh, and he's looked after me ever since." So they thought this was a love relationship. No, he'd been blackmailing him. That's where all the money had gone. He'd been blackmailing because he was gay, and this was in the late '80s that this guy died. So one of the interesting, this is a really interesting thing with the decriminalisation, um, the crime that disappeared, almost disappeared from the from the criminal books, was blackmail. 
That's a very interesting point. So you hear, so the point, you know, the question you ask, we actually hear dimensions of these stories. If we're prepared to bring them into the light, it gives a kind of permission for people to tell other stories. I did an interview on Radio New Zealand about it. I got back to email after email after email, private, quiet talking. You ended up in kitchens with people with a cup of tea, and they told you things they'd never told anybody else because they were... They thought they had to be ashamed of this. Um, and certainly things, that, and, and not just LGBT things, things like the, the trauma that had occurred to families when men, men, a lot of men returning with shell shock because it was a failed masculinity and a failed soldier. Our country was very bad at providing support for them. And so they couldn't be, they were not technically diagnosed. In 1917, we changed the diagnosis so it couldn't be a diagnosed. It was actually called not yet diagnosed. And so these men came back and there was no help for them because there was no diagnosis. And so they were basically told, well, go back into your families and you guys kind of look after them because they're a bit off the wall. And these men were deeply, deeply disturbed and tore these families apart. So kids growing up with incredibly violent fathers who couldn't sleep, who at times couldn't talk properly. This is a shell shock. And, and these people had held these stories close on their family, think because they'd been taught that this was somehow shameful what had happened. And so when we bring these, you know, this is why I believe in the power of history, is, or histories, when we bring these things out, we give permission for people, if not to let go, at least to share something that has been constructed as shame that isn't shame. It's just part of the human condition. And I'm just going to jump to, like, do you ever imagine that somewhere in our consciousness we'd get beyond the point where we need to use masculinity as a string manipulate people and would there ever be a time where we wouldn't have people having shame or covering up things and when are we going to be in an era where that's encouraged and accepted and to be out in the open like do you ever see that being a reality so so at the moment uh, i think we're probably further along than i can ever imagine in history um but still a very long way to go. I think we're still very vulnerable to it. And Tom, Tom Standage talks about a thing called chronocentricity that makes that we believe that at any given time we are at the most advanced state, either technologically or whatever. So we go, oh, we're at the most advanced state around issues of masculinity and issues of gender. and blah, blah, blah. Actually, we don't know. We don't know. It's normal human behaviour to say we are. We don't know the civilizations that built their buildings out of wood that don't even we don't even know existed on the earth. We don't know what the constructs of those worlds were. So we we tend to frame stuff sometimes euphorically. I would say though that when I that people one of the great agents against this is visibility. Visibility is a very, very powerful tool. And so when people make a choice to be visible around whether, you know, I, um, uh, someone says I, um, I've, I'm raising a child who wrestles with um, a mental health issue, or someone says I wrestle with a mental health issue, or somebody says um, I, um, they come out, or somebody goes um, I'm really poor at the moment, I actually can't get enough food to eat. When we come out, we take strip away the invisibility, and that's a very powerful thing. I always have huge respect, even if it's somebody who I may not have a high regard for. When I see them get rid of a piece of invisibility that helps this grand narrative stay in place, I have respect for them because it's a very, very hard thing to do. So it appears that we're in a good place, and I would uh, acknowledge every individual and group of people who have worked to get us here and to maintain this and to extend it 
it's a wonderful thing. I think you're doing your duty as a human being. But we cannot ever assume that that's a milestone that we'll reach that cannot be pulled away. And that's why what's being done is so valuable. No, for me as a concept, like what you're touching on is visibility, what you're saying, that to me might lead to acceptance. And if humanity have got to a point of acceptance, a lot of things... Would be harder to would, put into place. Would be harder to manipulate people and cover up anything. If mm. everything was visible and mm. you accept everything, mm. God would be in a much more harmonious place as people, but our consciousness may not much be able harder to get to, to that manipulate. Point. Harder much to manipulate harder people, to manipulate. and that's what I'm saying. Until that point, mm. like when it comes to the military and the, and the wars, like on a day to day, yes, that for example, the LGBTQI, we have acceptance, we have visibility, we have the pride parade, everyone's like, yay, in peacetime, everything seems wonderful. Uh, Come wartime, this seems like a very different concept altogether. It's not just wartime, though. It's a shift in political ideology. I have fears for the LGBT community in the States, and I think lots of our people do. Um, Things get over... We have a history of things being overturned, you know, of of these momentary flarings of, of, of... accommodation, tolerance, becoming an integrated part, and then they go again. Is it, but so do women, if you have a look at it. That, that also occurs. So, and I, I mean, this is why people, you know, people who, who kind of get upset at this ideology, going, you're so negative, you're so negative. I don't think it's negative. I don't think it's negative. It's just going that we are responsible. We remain always responsible. Um, if I can give you an example of this... Um, when I was a little kid, we, we, um, we lived out on a very remote farm. My dad was a shearing contractor, and it uh, was really was remote. I mean, this was in the sticks. And uh, this was in the 1960s, and I grew up in the company of these women who were aunt, Auntie Avril and, and uh, all these aunties, and they would come and stay with us for a few months. They were unmarried mothers. And, they, and back in those days, they had to go into hiding. They had to hide their pregnancy because society was so judgmental on them. So these were 16, 17-year-old girls who got pregnant and their parents... So, And we just did this. It wasn't something we charged for, but they would come and they'd live with us until the time that they had their baby. And then the baby was normally adopted. And then they returned and said, I've been on holiday to Sydney or whatever, and everything was... So that's how we handled stuff in New Zealand. And there's lots of documents about that. But I got to have the most incredible childhood because these, these women just festooned my childhood with wonder. You know, they were always... And, and, and I knew, I knew that, you know, they were, they were going to have a baby. And I knew, my, my parents had said to me, you don't, don't talk about this to other people because this is their... This is their they can choose to talk to other people. But I always remember one time coming in, uh, in from outside and there were two women from the district who dropped down to see my mother. And I was standing by the, the kitchen door and they didn't know I was there and they were telling my mother that it was very dangerous to have women like that in our house because what it could do to the family. You know, now today we would find that as an anomaly. We'd find, well, that's crazy. In the 1960s that wasn't crazy. That wasn't crazy, and that was something like the the many of the young women who I work with at the university they were the equivalent of these people, and so I look at that and I go, I don't think we could ever go back there. But then occasionally I see a flicker of something coming across from from a particular right wing, whether it's a European, a Northern European, whether it's American, wherever, and I think always be attentive to this. You know, the minorities often turn into the punching bags when things get bad. 
and um, and when people try to find simple solutions to complex problems, it's very easy to use minority. Looking forward to Anzac Day and the moment that we're all remembering these people and their stories, is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners at home? Probably. I don't. This is not an issue of the military. This is the issue of the politics that governs the military. So I think that we... You know, we were talking before about diversity. Well, I think that we could enrich the way we remember war, and we could use Anzac to do it. Let me give you an example. Where I grew up, there's a, a little memorial, there's a memorial, a stone memorial. Lots of communities have them, and on there are written all the names of the soldiers who died. Most people can tell you the names of soldiers who died in their family. Most people can't tell you the names of the men and women who stopped wars. We don't know the names of our diplomats who stopped those wars. We don't know the names of the people who stood up to, and slowly we're beginning to think of some names of conscientious objectors, but I mean those people who who use their skills of diplomacy and the understanding of politics. I don't just mean the glorified politicians. Those people who were working in the back rooms and the back corridors of negotiation, those people, yet, you know, we never call their names out. We actually don't know the names of the peacemakers. We know the names of the men and women who were sacrificed. So if we're going to enrich this thing called ANZAC, which is a commemoration of the wars of our nation, we need to look at that, but we also need to look at the wars that preceded the European wars, the wars in our own country on the soil that we walk across. So to give you an example, most of us can tell you the name of King Arthur's sword, but they can't tell you the name of the Taiaha of Riui Maniopoto. They can't. They can vaguely refer to, I think there were some land wars, but they can't even tell you the wars that they, the land they walk across every day. You know, so if this is in New Zealand, as ANZAC is about New Zealand and the wars that have been fought here, so that in the hope that we would... It's not, it's not just memory. It's not about remembering. It's remembering with a purpose so we don't end up back in these situations again. But we have to widen our understanding of what this is. So this is not disrespectful to require something richer and deeper of our commemorations. It's not. It's actually respectful of the human condition. It just means that the comfort of the grand narrative is going to be stretched a little wider. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Please check the show notes for a link to the website for Welby's short film Sparrow that we talked about, where you can watch the trailer and learn more. The full short film will be released later this year. You can reach us on Twitter. Remember to include hash AUT to submit your own questions and have them answered on a future episode. AUT is also on Facebook, Snapchat and Instagram at, at AUTUni. Please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends and family about the podcast. And thanks again for listening and see you next time. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You what does Marcellus Wallace look like? What's the deal with that? What's the matter with me, what? baby? What's the matter with you? Speak English and what? How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on first. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Why?